Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to Capital Power's second quarter 2020 results conference call. Currently, all participants are in listen-only mode. Following the presentation, the conference call will be open for questions. This call is being recorded today, July 30th, 2020. I'll now turn the call over to Mr. Randy Ma, the Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today to review Capital Power's second quarter 2020 results, which we released earlier this morning. Our second quarter report and the presentation for this conference call are posted on our website at capitalpower.com. Joining me on the call is Brian Baggio, President and CEO, and Brian Deneve, who will be doing this last quarterly call as the CFO before moving on to his new role. We will start with opening comments and then open up the lines to take your questions. Before we start, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements about future events made on the call are forward-looking in nature and are based on certain assumptions and analysis made by the company. Actual results could differ materially from the company's expectations due to various risks and uncertainties associated with our business. Please refer to the cautionary statement on forward-looking information on slide two. In today's discussion, we will be referring to various non-GAAP financial measures as noted on slide number three. These measures are not defined financial measures according to GAAP and do not have standardized meanings prescribed by GAAP and therefore are unlikely to be comparable to similar measures used by other enterprises. These measures are provided to complement the GAAP measures which are provided in the analysis of the company's results from management's perspective. Reconciliations of these non-GAAP financial measures to their nearest GAAP measures can be found in our second quarter 2020 MD&A. I'll now turn the call over to Brian Vajal for his remarks starting on slide four. Thanks, Randy, and good morning. I'll start off with the highlights in the quarter. Overall, our second quarter results were solid and were in line with our expectations. With no material changes to our outlook, we are maintaining our financial guidance for 2020 that was announced at our investor day last December. Consistent with our annual dividend growth guidance, we've increased the common share dividend by 6.8% to $2.05 per year, which represents the seventh consecutive annual increase. The dividend increase is effective with the third quarter 2020 dividend. We are also maintaining our dividend guidance for a 7% annual increase in 2021 and 5% for 2022. we're making very good progress on our renewable and growth strategy, which I'll discuss shortly. Finally, I'll comment on the changes in the alignment of the executive team that were announced this morning. In the last couple of months, we've announced two renewable development projects in Alberta, as shown on slide five. This includes phase three of the Whitlaw Wind Facility that will add 54 megawatts in late 2021. And as expected, capital cost uh, at an expected capital cost of $92 million. Construction activities 
and discussions for renewable optic agreements with commercial and industrial customers are occurring concurrently for Whitlaw 2 and 3. Once all three phases of the Whitlaw wind facility are completed at the end of 2021, it will be Alberta's largest wind facility with 353 megawatts of generation capacity. Today, we are announcing our first solar development project in Canada, the Strathmore Solar Project that will add 40.5 megawatts in early 2022, with an expected capital cost of $50 million to $55 million. We expect a portion of the output to be sold under renewable optic contracts. The average annual adjusted EBITDA and AFFR for the Strathmore Solar are expected to be approximately $5 million over the first five years. Slide 6 shows the realigned Capital Power Executive. I'll take a moment to introduce you to the new executives and comment on the significance of the realignment. On the far left, we have Kate Chisholm, who will continue in her role of Chief Sustainability Officer, and we are adding planning to her responsibilities. We felt that our strategic planning needs to evolve to have more of an ESG lens. Next is Brian Deneve, who will return to the commercial business development role. Brian uh, has modified the structure to focus more clearly and efficiently on the commercial and growth initiatives. Sandra Haskins is promoted to Senior Vice President Finance and Chief Financial Officer, who in her 18-year history with us has held all the major senior positions in the CFO area, including a recent position of Vice President and Treasurer. Many of you have met Sandra in the past as she is often pitch hit for Brian or I in investor meetings. Chris Kopecki is promoted to Senior Vice President and Chief Legal Officer. Chief uh, Chris joined us as a lawyer in the U.S. 12 years ago, but for the last five years has headed up our U.S. commercial and business development activities. In addition to the commercial sense Chris will bring to his new role, he will also bring us a U.S. perspective to our executive table. Jackie Polipiak adds culture and information technology to her existing people or human resources responsibility. Capital Power has an outstanding culture with excellent engagement. As we move into the new world of work, maintaining our culture will be critical, so highlighting it and aligning it with people is very important. Information systems will be increasingly important to lever our employees' skill sets across the company. Darcy Trufin's role of Senior Vice President Operations, Engineering, and Construction will continue unchanged. For the past few months, we've drilled down into the organization to develop a more efficient and effective alignment, which has resulted in over 20 changes in roles and responsibilities and a net reduction of over 12 positions. This positions the organization very well for the coming years. I'll now turn the call over to Brian Deneve. Thanks, Brian. I'll review the financial highlights starting on slide seven. Overall, the second quarter financial results were in line with our expectations. Our trading desk captured an average realized power price of $53 per megawatt hour in the second quarter that was 77% higher than the average price of $30 per megawatt hour. 
The low power price in the second quarter reflected lower market demand from reduced oil and gas production and impacts from COVID-19, and softer pricing from a stable baseload supply, strong hydro and wind generation, and moderate temperatures. In the second quarter, we recorded $3 million for the estimated net liability for the line loss rule proceeding that increased the overall provision to $18 million. The provision was updated to reflect updated information from the ISO. We expect the timing of the three invoice payments to begin in 2020 and continue into the first half of 2021. We have reinstated our dividend reinvestment plan, which was previously suspended in June 2015, to raise equity towards renewable development projects under construction. With respect to our credit ratings, both DBRS and SMP have now affirmed our investment-grade credit rating in the past few months. On July 14th, SMP affirmed our triple B low rating with a stable outlook, while DBRS affirmed our triple B low rating and stable outlook in their April 7th report. Moving to slide eight, revenues and other income in the second quarter were 435 million, up 19% compared to the second quarter of 2019 mainly due to the acquisition of Goreway in June of 2019. Adjusted EBITDA was $217 million, up 14% year-over-year. That was largely driven by the acquisition of Goreway and renewable additions. Normalized earnings of $0.17 cents per share were up 21% compared to $0.14 cents per share in the second quarter of 2019. We generated $97 million in AFFO, that was 14% higher than the 85 million in the second quarter of last year. And AFO full per share was 92 cents, up 12% from the second quarter of 2019. Slide nine shows our financial performance in the first half of the year compared to the same period in 2019. Revenues and other income were 968 million, up 27% year over year, due to the acquisition of Goreway and strong portfolio optimization revenues. Adjusted EBITDA was $451 million, up 15% compared to 2019, primarily due to the acquisition of Goreway and renewable additions of Buckthorn, Cardinal Point, and Whitwell Wind. Normalized earnings of $0.44 cents per share were unchanged from a year ago. We continue to generate strong AFFO including $215 million in the first six months. That was up 6% year-over-year. AFFO per share was $2.04, up 4% from the same period in 2019. Turning to slide 10, I'll provide an update on our commercial portfolio positions. For the remainder of 2020, our basal generation is substantially hedged. At the end of June, we're 10% hedged for 2021 at an average contract price in the high $50 per megawatt hour range. We expect liquidity to increase during the remainder of this year that will facilitate increased hedging for 2021. For 2022 and 2023, we're 16% and 11% hedged at an average contract price in the low $50 per megawatt hour range for both years. Current forward prices are in the low $50 per megawatt hour for 2001 to 2023. I'll now turn the call back to Brian.
Brian, you might be on mute. Thanks, Brian, and thanks, Randy. Uh, I'll review our six-month performance versus our 2020 annual targets as shown on slide 11. The average facility availability in the first six months is 92% compared to the 93% annual target. With most of our planned major outages already completed in the first half of the year, and with the deferral of the Genesee 2 planned outage to 2021, we expect the average availability to be slightly above our target for 2020. Sustaining CapEx were $34 million in the first half of the year. With the deferral of the Genesee 2 outage, we expect sustaining CapEx will be below the $90 to $100 million annual target. We recorded $451 million in adjusted EBITDA in the first half of the year versus the $935 million to $985 million target. Based on our current forecast, we expect a full-year adjusted EBITDA to be above the midpoint of the range. We generated $215 million of AFFO in the first six months compared to $500 million to $550 million target range. We are on track to be near the midpoint of the AFFO range, excluding the impacts of the line loss rule proceeding. Slide 12 outlines our development and construction targets for 2020. This includes the construction of two wind projects. We completed our Cardinal Wind Project on schedule in March and within the U.S. dollar budget range. Following the start of the commercial operations, we received $221 million in net tax equity financing from two U.S. financial institutions. Cardinal Point is now operating under a 12-year PPA for 85% of its output. The other wind project under construction is Whitlaw 2, which is currently tracking on budget and on schedule for commercial operations in the first quarter of 2021. Moving to slide 13, we have an annual target of $500 million of committed capital for growth. Thus far this year, we've committed approximately $330 million for growth. This includes the acquisition of Buckthorn Wind in Texas with a 15-year weighted average contract remaining life and two renewable development projects in Alberta, Whitlaw Wind 3 and the Strathmore Solar Project that I mentioned earlier. In summary, strong quarter and year-to-date uh, operations uh, and results are very good. Construction has gone very well, and growth in renewables, likewise, has been very good uh, thus far this year. I'll now turn the call back over to Randy. All right. Thanks, Brian. Carl, we're ready to start the question and answer session. Certainly, sir. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. The first question comes from Maurice Choi from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thank you, and good morning. Um, my first question is on the trip. Um, can you discuss your thought process on how you came about this decision to reinstate uh, the program, recognizing, of course, that S&P reaffirmed your triple B minus rating. Uh, as well, could you discuss uh, your expectations as to what is the take-up of this um, or how much equity you 
would expect to raise over the next 12 months. Yes. Um, you know, we uh, uh, looked at uh, reinstating the drift in the context of our ongoing uh, development activity we have. So as Brian uh, mentioned, uh, Whitlaw 2 and 3 are currently under construction, and, and we've now added Strathmore Solar. So uh, uh, in terms of that build-out over the next year, um, you know, we're going to be looking to finance that. But we also believe there's a number of uh, potential opportunities uh, out there that could be a good fit for capital power strategically. So uh, given the volatility of the markets, um, we felt it would be prudent to uh, utilize the DRIP as a way to um, access some equity financing over that period. Um, we anticipate about a 30% uh, participation rate uh, in it, which would uh, you know, generate about $16 million of equity per quarter. So we don't see it as being uh, hugely dilutive, uh, but it does give us uh, access to that equity uh, sort of on a measured basis in what is a fairly volatile period. And and, and just to follow up to that, um, as you mentioned, volatile period, and I assume that one of the items include where the Alberta power price um, is at the moment. Um, should we see a recovery of that market? Um, should we then automatically assume that the drip would be turned off, or is this um, a longer-term and almost permanent feature of your um, sources of funding? You know, uh, <clears throat> the, the answer to that, I think, is largely driven by uh, the nature of the growth opportunities uh, we see that become available over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, we're not going to grow for growth's sake. They have to fit with us uh, strategically and meet our, our financial uh, objectives. But um, again, you know, we feel there will be a number of opportunities out there. Uh, we are pursuing a number of uh, development opportunities um, that, uh, you know, will require uh, potentially uh, uh, higher financing than we've experienced previously to the extent we exceed our, our typical growth target. So, but to your point, if, if we see um, uh, strong recovery in Alberta prices, which is what our expectations are, um, you know, certainly that'll generate uh, uh, materially more cash flow and we would reevaluate the drip at that point in time. Thanks. And my second question, and, and this um, relates to um, obviously the growth initiatives that you have, uh, very quick succession of Whitler 3 and Strathmore Solar announcements uh, alongside um, another renewable project um, by way of Buckthorn. Um, is this, um, I suppose, a trend that we should be looking at um, in terms of what's in your pipeline? Um, obviously, high contractor percentage uh, for, for EBITDA purposes, but also uh, predominantly renewable energy. Um, and the mixture of uh, U.S. and um, Alberta specifically. So, in respect of, of uh, the growth initi initiatives that we've been successful this year, I would say that is uh, uh, indicative of our development pipeline. Um, we are finding that through you know in increasing um, search for effective sites, 
uh, and uh, efficient uh, development sites, uh, we've been uh, fairly successful uh, over the over the last uh, year or so, and we do anticipate that um, you can expect uh, more uh, in on the development side in terms of uh, renewable projects in both Canada and the United States. Um, so again, uh, this is an indicative of, of what you can expect over the next little while. We have found that we are tending to be um, increasingly competitive in the market in terms of delivering uh, a relatively low cost uh, uh, per megawatt hour. Does that mean that thermal generation, beyond obviously what you currently have in your portfolio, thermal generation is uh, slightly lower in the pecking order, if not entirely off? No, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it's a, a lot of it is dependent upon, you know, the results or, or the um, the opportunities that we see in front of ourselves. Um, you know, through the pandemic, uh, a lot of the development activities have can, continued, whereas the number of opportunities to acquire uh, midlife natural gas assets um, declined temporarily fairly significantly. So, a lot of it is is uh, dependent upon the um, the opportunities we see in front of us. Having said that, you know our general preference um, is to you know uh, develop, build um, renewable projects. That makes sense. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question comes from David Casada from Raymond James. Please go ahead. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Um, my first question here, uh, just to follow up on Strathmore, I'm wondering if there's any color you could provide on, on the percentage of capacity that you'll look to, to contract there, um, and, and wondering if there's any potential for you to include Strathmore in, in, in contracting discussions on, on the Whitlaw projects that you're looking to find an off-taker for right now, does the, the combination of those, the generation profile of those assets, does that, is that like an, an avenue you could pursue? So with those, uh, with the, the projects, um, you know, there's a there's a number of opportunities uh, emerging in, in Alberta for uh, longer term contracts uh, with uh, CNI customers, and they are all over the map in terms of time period. In terms of some of them want both wind and solar, some just want wind, some want uh, just want solar. Um, and uh, we believe our, our projects are competitive, and, and what we've seen in the market, you know, confirms that. Uh, we have no target percentage on either of these projects, um, uh, or I guess the three Whitlaw, two and three, and uh, and uh, Strathmore Solar. Um, we have proceeded with those projects based on them meeting uh, the hurdle rates for. Um, merchant uh, generation in the province. Uh, we felt that it, it needed to, to meet that standard so that we were comfortable with um, uh, uh, then pursuing uh, uh, contracted opportunities around them. So uh, again, we'll see uh, what percentage we can get contracted on those facilities, but uh, you know, uh, and uh, again, we seem to be pretty competitive in, in the market right now. and. Uh, but again, we have no specific target as to how much we want to uh, to uh, to uh, have uh, uh, contracted. We 
obviously like them all to be 100% contracted, and, and we'll see uh, where we get to. Okay, great. Thank you. That's helpful. And then just maybe one more for me. Please go ahead. Mr. Jarvie, your line is live. Please go ahead, sir. Uh, sorry, I had, had a bit of static. I couldn't hear that. Um, maybe just, uh, Brian Badger, you can just go, come back to the, the management um, shuffle and just talk a little bit about how that shapes your, your view on capital allocation and asset mix. And maybe just kind of elaborate a little bit more on, on sort of your, your renewed vision for, for where capital power is going in terms of uh, capital deployment. So in terms of capital deployment, um, the uh, realignment in, in terms of our executive responsibilities, um, don't believe uh, is impacted by a forward view of, of capital deployment. Certainly uh, with a, a stronger focus on ESG and our commitment to you know, the various um, areas of, of uh, ESG, uh, does result in, in time, you know, some influence towards, you know, greater renewables, uh, lower emissions profile, whether that be through carbon capture and storage or um, more uh, carbon conversion or renewables. You know, certainly we expect uh, some uh, growing uh, direction from that perspective. And again, that's why we've, you know, reinforced that area and in fact given it significantly more focus uh, in the organization. But um, it doesn't. It's not reflected of um, uh, a more immediate uh, change in terms of uh, capital allocation. Um, what it does uh, signal, though, is that you know we believe that we will be more efficient and effective um, as we go forward. Of course, we believe we were, uh, you know, again, very efficient and effective uh, historically. But uh, we think this will take us to uh, a higher level. Uh, given the, the natural alignment between the areas and greater focuses um, in Brian Denise's area, um, he's restructured it so that there is a very sort of laser-focused uh, group looking at uh, development and uh, and acquisitions going forward, and then another group um, that again is laser-focused on the enhancing the value of existing assets um, as well as some. Uh, development opportunities on the commercial side. So, uh, you know, for example, one of the things that, that uh, it, it reflects is an increase in focus on um, uh, origination in the pursuit of CNI customers, for an example. So it does have some implications, but it's, uh, it's, it's more the focus and, again, enhancement in some areas that we think will uh, results in um, greater performance as we move forward. Okay. And then, you know, there's been some reports out there that this Cascade 900 megawatt uh, combined cycle plant might move forward and encircling some financing that you can't control what others do from adding new supply. But from, from your context, what do you think this could mean for power prices or, or the standard for best gas and implications for your own fleet? So, uh, you know, certainly um, we've uh, uh, we monitor the Alberta market very closely in terms of 
how new supply is progressing through the development process. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're confident in the Alberta market that, uh, that the price signals there will, will result in, you know, the most competitive generation being built, but also that uh, you will see other decisions made in terms of what's economical to do with some of the older generation in the province. So we're in a much better place where we're going to see uh, uh, supply decisions being made on a commercial basis in response to what's seen being built as, as new facilities. So uh, if Cascade does uh, proceed, uh, we believe that'll have a follow-on effect in terms of uh, decisions that are made with some of the older generation which will be further out of the market as a result of that, and we'll see their utilization drop uh, dramatically. So very confident that the market will maintain a, uh, an appropriate supply-demand balance and will continue to produce uh, uh, proper price signals as we move forward. So fair enough to say then on your comments there, Brian, that you think where you sit on the mirror curve with Genesee units, you're far enough away from whatever incremental or what kind of generation current in the market could be displaced by this facility if it came online? Yes, that's correct. You know, um, uh, the Genesee units, with the exception of Keep Hills 3, are the uh, youngest uh, uh, units in the fleet. Uh, we've moved to uh, dual fuel capability, or moving to dual fuel capability, which allows us to optimize around uh, fuel costs between natural gas and coal, but it's the age of the facilities that is critical. So they, you know, out of the uh, legacy fleet, uh, they have the lowest heat rate and are most efficient and lower, lowest in the stack. So I think as you have new supply come on, such as Cascade, that's going to have implications for those older units that are higher in the stack. And we would see a modest impact on the utilization of uh, our Genesee facility. Okay, and, and then coming back to the implementation of the drip and prior comments that you guys could largely internally finance up to $500 million in investments a year, and you kind of put the Strathmore budget and the Whitlaw budgets together here. Does that, or, and then obviously putting maybe third-party M&A aside, is, could you exceed $500 million on an organic investment basis over the next 12 months from other development activities you guys have on the go here? Is that the read-through on on the rationale for the drip, or is it the fact that you think there will be some M&A coupled with some increased development activity? Uh, well, certainly um, on the development side, as, as Brian Vajal was mentioning, um, we're, we're pursuing opportunities on a number of fronts and believe uh, there's a high probability that we'll see um, some of those come to fruition. But also, uh, we are also uh, looking at opportunities on the M&A side. So, again, uh, we believe over the next 12 to 18 months, it'll be fairly active on the growth side and a good chance that we could uh, exceed that $500 million target. Um, so, uh, hence why we're uh, taking those steps with the drip. Okay. And then my last question, just on Decatur, any update on status and timelines for, for maybe getting a, a, a new contract extension done? Um, the, um, the, the process has continued um, and 
I would say that um, we would expect to, to come to conclusion almost uh, any day now. Okay. All right. We'll watch for that then. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Once again, if you have a question, please press star then one on your telephone keypad now. The next question comes from Patrick Kenny from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, everybody, uh, and congrats to Sandra, Brian, and the rest of the team. Um, on Strathmore, can you just remind us if the 40 megawatts is the ultimate capacity of the site, um, or can you explore phase two, phase three opportunities, you know, depending on the level of interest in offtake contracts and maybe the ultimate value of carbon credits, and, and maybe you can confirm if there's any upside to that $5 million EBITDA guidance if the carbon tax does go up to $50 a ton from 30 today. So it, uh, the, uh, the 40 megawatt capacity pretty much takes uh, up the, uh, the footprint of the site. You know, there may be opportunity for, for a modest increase, but uh, again, that, that generally is, is uh, the site capacity. Um, in terms of, um, you know, as, as, as uh, we sort of look forward in, in the uh, increasing, uh, potential increase in, in carbon tax, et cetera, obviously as, as the carbon tax goes up, it, it does create uh, a bit of upside associated with, uh, with the uh, returns on that facility. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you can grind down on that 10 times, build multiple a little bit. And I guess coming back to other questions around the drip, um, you know, with, with you guys trading at, let's say seven, eight times today. I mean, do you expect your future growth opportunities that you're going after to, you know, to bring down that weighted average capital deployment multiple um, more towards where you're trading or, or is the strategy simply to, you know, absorb a, a modest level of dilution today, as you said, in exchange for accelerating the business mix more towards renewables in the hope that, you know, the market will re-rate your valuation um, up towards your build multiple. Um, yeah, certainly it's, uh, uh, it's a combination of those factors that you've mentioned, Pat. Um, uh, to the extent uh, we have been focused on uh, contracted opportunities and um, development opportunities, uh, you know, one of the things we've demonstrated over the last uh, uh, five years or, or even longer is our ability to bring in development projects um, uh, below budget, uh, target budget, and, and, and at times uh, bring them on early relative to schedule. So. That's a that's a value add that we we typically uh, bring to the table and result on those projects that uh, lifts the economics. Um, the other thing is is uh, yeah we see the benefits of uh, increasing contracting percentage and, and increased diversification that uh, you know will uh, increase our trading multiple in the market and will ultimately get realized through a through a higher share price. So um, you know that. That is the effect we're looking for as as we do 
uh, add more uh, contracted uh, opportunities to our portfolio. Okay, got it. And just the last question for me, guys. Um, I see the decommissioning provision is up another thirty million or so since the end of March. Uh, looks like up hundred million to four hundred forty-five million uh, from year-end levels about 355 can you just confirm how much of that increase is related to say an uptick on the obligations related to the coal mine versus just simply you know adding new assets to the portfolio yeah about uh, six million of that is is a result of the addition of the the buckthorn uh facility earlier this year the the balance of it is really uh driven by um uh, a lower uh, discount rates as a result of the, the low interest rate environment. So just um, uh, increasing uh, those future obligations when okay. you discount them. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. The next question comes from Andy Kuski from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead, sir. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, question as it relates to, I mean, the current environment we're in with COVID-19 and just the impact it's had on demand curves in multiple markets. But the gist of the question is really focused on, has there been any fundamental change to your outlook in Alberta's own power market transition as we go to the PPAs into a more competitive market? And then the, the second part of the question really relates to you know, contracting facilities that you've got. Um, more outside of Alberta. And I know you mentioned earlier on about Decatur maybe coming within a few days, but has anything really structurally changed on that side of it too, given the current environment? Yeah, so, you know, um, in terms of uh, the impact of demand in Alberta, uh, we we have seen us uh, hit uh, the the, the high point of demand destruction and certainly we're starting to see that uh, come back now uh, as the province reopens. Um, there is uh, some of that demand destruction of course is, is related to the oil and gas industry. Uh, that may take a little bit longer to come back. But I think a, a key element here is, uh, like you were saying Andrew, is um, you know uh, how the uh, market will function uh, once we have the full expiry, the PPAs at the end of this year. So uh, certainly uh, for those of you who have been watching the Alberta market over the last several days, uh, we've had uh, fairly high temperatures in the province and uh, very strong pricing. Um, and, you know, and I think that that is what you can see as the, as the market working, providing signals that, uh, uh you know, there's a shortage of supply, there's some D-rates, and um, that is uh, a dynamic we would expect will continue uh, into 2021 and will get uh, amplified as, as the uh, last of the PPAs expire at the end of this year. So, you know, that is one of the key reasons uh, why we view 2021 on a more bullish uh, perspective than, than where current forwards are trading. Okay, that's great, and I, I guess that's also um, not not as a jab, but that's you know fairly high weather and high high, high degrees by uh, Alberta standards. 
Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess along as sort of as Alberta, as it relates to Alberta, I mean, that explains why you're just so open on your contracted position in, in, the, in the commercial portfolio. That's right. Now, you know, we've seen, um, if you go back, I, I, I think about 12 months ago, uh, we saw fair, fairly low prices, like uh, sub 50s in 2021. And, uh, there was a very large gap between uh, our views on 2021 and where forwards were. So that, uh, that was a factor in decisions we're making on selling forward. So fortunately we've seen uh, those prices um, recover back into the fifties. So certainly not, not the same degree of, of gap that we saw. So uh, as we expect, uh, as liquidity improves and we go through the year, That'll put upward, further upward pricing on uh, 2021 and, and create additional opportunities to sell forward. Okay. That's great. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. The next question comes from John Mould from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Morning. Uh, I'd like to go back to midlife gas acquisitions. Uh, you know, we've all seen that Joe Biden's proposing a carbon emission-free electricity system by 2035, and that does include support for carbon capture and utilization technology. But, but I'm wondering how this potential policy shift, policy shift informs how you look at potential midlife gas acquisitions in the U.S. So certainly um, we're watching fairly closely. Um, and again, a lot of it is dependent on, you know, the specific asset and the specific market. Um, I would say, you know, uh, broad sweeping drive in the U.S., um, you know, politically driven through, you know, in incentives uh, can have an, an impact on some markets uh, very significantly. Um, in other cases, uh, you know, it's uh, where you don't have uh, a natural renewable base, where you do, uh, where you are, you know, dependent on natural gas for you know, specific uh, types of uh, service to either the grid or you know time of day. Uh, we expect that you know those assets will will definitely have a, a prevailing life. And if you look at 2035, and, you know, one of the reasons why we're looking at midlife assets is simply because we don't see that, you know, that the time frame will, would, you know, without things such as carbon capture and utilization, we don't see a life, you know, well, well beyond, you know, 2035 or 2050. Uh, so that's, again, why, you know, we are focused on, you know, midlife uh, natural gas assets in specific markets and with specific characteristics. So again, uh, those policies can have an impact on the natural gas fleet. We don't believe that it would have material impact on the assets that we have, nor the kinds of assets that we look at. Okay, um, and then maybe moving along on that utilization front, I don't think I saw anything uh, updating us in the report on C2CNT and, and its progress is, is the expected you know, one quarter delay that you articulated on the Q1 call resulting from COVID-19 still consistent with your expectations there? Uh, yes. 
Yes. I mean, it might slip another month or so, but um, uh, the uh, Professor Licht and his team are back on site. Um, they're moving forward uh, with the uh, ramping up of uh, the uh, manufacture of, of carbon nanotubes at, at, a, at a higher scale, and that's well in progress. Um, work is continuing to develop the appropriate carbon nanotube and medium uh, associated with the uh, cement business or concrete business. So, you know, everything is sort of back on track or getting back on track. Uh, but again, it, it, it will be a, a three or four month delay relative to our initial expectations. Okay, thanks. And maybe just one last thing on the East Windsor steam contract. I appreciate that PPA doesn't expire until the end of the decade. Are there any opportunities on the cogen front for that facility, given the, the contract for steam expired in Q2? Uh, no, we don't. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, no, I was, I, was, I think I was going to say the same thing you were, Brian. Uh, Probably not uh, alternatives on the cogen side. So, uh, but we are looking at uh, other ways to to optimize the operation of that facility. Okay, great. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question comes from Najee Beidun from Industrial Alliance Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Just uh, one question on um, renewable power projects. Uh, you know, historically, you've been focused more on, on the wind side of things. Now with the Stratmore project and your earlier comment on maybe accelerating investments in renewables, can you give us any details on, you know, what your solar pipeline looks like today and, and what are the opportunities that you're pursuing in the solar space or you will be pursuing in that space going forward? So on the solar side, we've been cautious. Um, you, you know, I think as, as we've been commenting for the last um, 18 months or, or actually longer, uh, we do see that, that uh, solar is a, obviously a very significant uh, source of energy in, in North America and increasingly so. And, you know, we, we felt that we needed to be part of uh, that development. So. We have been um, slowly uh, trying to develop the expertise, um, become competitive, uh, both in terms of you know construction processes and uh, our approach to uh, putting projects together. Um, and so, as it sits today, obviously we're moving forward with Strathmore, which, in the Alberta context, is uh, very competitive. Uh, we've participated in some activities in the, in the U.S. and, uh, you know, we're feeling that, that we are definitely moving forward and be, will be competitive in the U.S. as well. So uh, we don't have a large pipeline of uh, renewable uh, projects, again, simply because, you know, we thought we'd make sure that we were competitive. And um, although our pipeline is growing, it certainly isn't as robust today as it is on the wind side. But it will grow as, as we prove our competitiveness. Uh, we will be, you know, significantly expanding that pipeline. And again, simply we didn't want to get out over our skis before we'd proven um, to ourselves that uh, we were competitive. Yeah, thank you uh, for the details. Thank you. 
This concludes the question and answer session. I would now like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Randy Ma for any closing remarks. Okay, thank you, Carl. If there are no more questions, we will conclude our conference call. Thanks again for joining us this morning and for your interest in Capital Power. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.